Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1 book, Death on the Beach, The Somerton Man. It was 1948 and a man in a suit looked like he was resting in the sun on an Adelaide beach. A couple of good Samaritans checked on him and he waved them away. The next morning he was discovered dead. He had nothing on him that identified who he was. The police soon discovered, in a pocket in the man's trousers, a piece of paper rolled tightly bearing two strange words. Those words were tamam shud, which are Persian words. And we'll explain in a little bit, a bit about where it came from and what they mean. But it was a curious thing to find wound up in a bloke's fob pocket in 1948 when they found this chap on the beach. I feel very sad for the Somerton man because I just wonder if the couple who first saw him there had acted quickly, he might have lived. What was the timeline? Well, it was mid-afternoon when a fellow called John Lyons and his wife were out walking on the beach. They thought it was a bit strange. It was a fairly warm day when the man was certainly overdressed. He had on a shirt, long trousers, a pullover, a jacket, a tie, and black street shoes. And he was sort of lying a bit awkwardly on the sand, his head resting on the concrete edging of the wall that was behind him. The lions were worried that the mozzies in the area were rampant. The fellow didn't seem to be reacting to them much. And so John Lyons walked over towards him to see if he was okay. Before he got there, the bloke raised his arm. And so John Lyons took that as an indicator that he was okay. And off they went. Wow, what a great shame. What happened next? Well, the next morning, two blokes walking a horse and a local jeweller, again, John Lyon, turned up on the beach and he was still there, this guy. And so at this point in time, they called the police didn't take them long to get him into an ambulance, the body that is, taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital where out the front in an ambulance that morning he was pronounced dead. Mm. It was one of the great mysteries of Australia at the time, still is, I mean still unsolved, no one knows who the Somerton man as he became known is to this day. So was there anything on him to give the police any clues? There were a few things that he had. There was a partially smoked cigarette lying on his right collar, another which hadn't been lit lying nearby. In his pockets were an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to the now-defunct Henley Beach Railway Station, a used bus ticket from the city and two combs. Some reports say there was just one comb and it was made from aluminium, the type of comb uh, that wasn't available in Australia. He had some cigarettes and a pack of the old Brighton May matches and half a packet of Juicy Fruit, if you remember those, the little tablets of chewing gum. The bus ticket was traced and showed that uh, this chap had travelled from Adelaide to Somerton the day before he was found dead on the beach. And according to a police report, there was also a small piece of torn, tightly folded paper in the fob pocket of his trousers bearing the words Tamam Shud, uh, the words we mentioned earlier. The police thought they'd got a break, though, didn't they, when they found a suitcase which they believed belonged to him? Yeah, it took a while for that to happen. I think pretty much straight away the police realised this wasn't going to be a simple investigation, and so the body was embalmed to help in the ongoing identification process. And then five weeks later, 14th of January 1949, at the Adelaide railway station, a suitcase had been left there on the 30th of November and not been claimed. Uh, 
The police took it and found that it had probably belonged to him, given that there were the same sort of clothes in it worn by the deceased man, which carried uh, name tags of the name Keane, one spelt K-E-A-N-E and the other K-E-A-N. you think that would have been a great clue. you think there would have been Keens lined up all over Australia to say, I know him. Yeah, well, there weren't. <laughs> <laughs> he did receive a burial, though. The South Australian Bookmakers Association, bless them, put together their funds and they buried him. Yeah, they paid for it and they had to organise a publican from a hotel across the road and a journo who happened to be in there to help with the carrying of the coffin. There were just no contacts for this bloke at all. <laughs> the next step, of course, was after this fellow was buried that it went to inquest and some really interesting information came out. The poisons became the prime suspicion as to what had killed this bloke. Mm-hmm. And an expert, uh, Dr. John Dwyer, who was a pathologist, he suggested it was probably a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic, and yet there were other poisons which could have come into the picture which would have decomposed very early after death. I think what happened at the end of the investigation into the whole issue of poisons was that they felt that he'd been poisoned Mm. but the poison had disappeared, evaporated, evaporated, Mm. not been able to be traced. Mm. And so we still don't know to this day just Mm. exactly what killed this fellow. You know what's really interesting now is these poisons that are happening around the world by Russians. This was the Cold War period, was it not? It was, absolutely. So is there a Russian connection? Well, there may well be. There was some interesting stuff came out of the inquest that talked about the physical condition of this bloke, and he was in good shape. I mean, he was fit. He wasn't carrying any weight. He had wedge-shaped toes, according to the inquest. He had the pronounced high calf muscles of someone who regularly wore pointed shoes, like a ballet dancer. Mm. So he may have been someone who was from overseas. His clothing was fashionable. His coat was of American tailoring. Mm. It hadn't been imported, indicating the man had been to the States or bought the coat from someone who had. The cone was also an international brand, wasn't it? It it was, yeah. yeah. His shoes were exceptionally shining and it has that military touch to it. Mm. Diggers and former diggers love to have the old polished shoes. One must. And certainly he had that. One of the other interesting questions that came out of the inquest was how did the man get where he was if he'd been poisoned? One of the, uh, the signs of poisoning, of course, is vomiting and convulsions, and there was no sign of that on the beach. Mm. Later on, there was a man came forward who said he saw a well-dressed man carrying another well-dressed man down the beach mm. that night, mm. uh, the night before, that is, the, the body was discovered. But again, that man was never found. But that could mean, of course, that that wasn't the man that the lions first saw on the beach, and he could have been dead before this man was left on the beach. Yes, absolutely. So they've got nothing? No, very little at all. Wow. So now they decided that they'd better find out what they could about this tiny piece of paper that was rolled up in the fog Mm. pocket of his trousers. With the words Tam and Shud. Tam and Shud, yeah. And the two words are at the end of the last verse of the English translation of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, and they mean to end or to finish. Uh, That was the determination of some people from the Adelaide Library who translated it from the Persian. The most amazing part of this story, I think, is that they were now looking for a book, a copy of this Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, that had that particular page torn out. I mean, if they ever found it, it was a million to one shot. (laughs) I know. I can imagine everybody who's got a copy of that anywhere in Australia having a quick look. But probably the book's disappeared and long gone. Well, it turned up uh, in their investigations. Friday night, 22nd of July, 1949, a New Zealand published copy of that particular book was handed into police in Adelaide. Of course, the first thing they'd do was go to the back to look for the words Tamam Shud, mm-hmm. and yep, they torn, torn out. out. Wow. The man who handed it in said the book had been thrown through the open window 
into the back seat of his car in Glenelg around about the time that the summit man's body was found on the beach. Well, that sounds very shady. Who is this man? Never been identified. We don't know. Mm. Uh, never been officially identified throughout this whole summit man saga. Wow, there's so many red herrings in this case. There's more. Oh, no. They then found in the book, when they looked closely, they could see where a faint indentations where someone had written a telephone number and what appears to be a cipher or a code, which was five lines of just letters. Mm. Now, it could well have been a code, but it was never broken, so nobody ever knew. And we've got that code in the book, and you can find it online, but it means nothing, unless you know the code. Yeah, exactly right. The phone number was something entirely different again. It belonged to a lady who lived in Glenelg, not far away from where the body was found, Mm. and the suggestion was that she had been somehow involved with the Summerton man. The long shot of this was that they both, it was suggested, may have been part of a Russian spy ring, oh, which had been operating out of the Russian embassy in Canberra in the days towards the end of and immediately after the Second World War. See, reds under the bed. Could have been. That was what was suggested. There was also suggestions that she had had a child with this man who eventually turned out to be a brilliant ballet dancer, mm. so much so, so that he ended up in the Australian ballet. Mm. But who was this woman then? Did they confront her? Yeah, police traced her as the person holding that telephone number. She said she didn't know who the dead man was and why he would have had her phone number or why he was on the beach in her suburb where he died. Mm. Well, you would say that. Well, not all the police believed that. One policeman said he believed that this lady, Jessica Thompson, knew the dead man and her daughter later speaking on the TV program 60 Minutes, in fact it was in 2013, said that she believed her mother knew the dead man and had told her that the whole Summerton Man affair was above state police level. Now didn't her daughter hear her mother speaking in fluent hush Russian once? That was I guess the bombshell that came out of the 60 Minutes story was that Kate said that she believed her mother was a Soviet spy and could speak Russian Mm. after hearing her talking rapidly in hushed tones on the telephone. She said her mother had a very dark side and wasn't going to let the cat out of the bag as to the identity of the Summerton man. Mm. Kate also said that she feared that maybe her mother, Jessica Thompson, was responsible for the death of the Summerton man. So, again, none of that went anywhere. It seems bizarre that he should remain unidentified. I believe his dental records didn't match anyone's in Australia and I don't know whether his DNA was ever tested. I think that with his teeth, they not only checked in Australia... They checked in the USA and England and most other places where we have any relationships with and no No match either. No match at all. Bizarre. There were two applications over the years for an exhumation to gather material for a DNA match or a possible one. Uh, Both of those were knocked back by the authorities. It's getting hard now because nearly all the main players in the saga of the Summit and Man are dead. So short of something of this affair being part of some official agency's records that may one day be disclosed, we're not going anywhere quickly. Wow. Now, in terms of where the Somerton man is buried, and he is remembered, you know, he may not have a name, but he is remembered. Yes, and from time to time, someone puts flowers on his grave. He's in the West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide. The instructions on how to find him are in uh, the book and there's a a plaque uh, Mm. on the grave which explains who he is. Grave Tales feature grave. 
Okay, so our feature grave is in Brighton Cemetery in Victoria. That's a nice cemetery, isn't it? It is. And the people there are really, really helpful if you're going there looking for anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And the historians related to that cemetery are wonderfully helpful. We've been very lucky. But the feature grave is very interesting because it has no bodies in it. (laughs) Um, Can can I ask what's the point? (laughs) Yes, you may. It was probably meant to have bodies in it. It's the grave, or at least the monument, of Madame Johanna Weigel and her husband Oscar. Yep. Now, Madame Weigel probably isn't known to a lot of younger people today, but her patterns, her paper patterns, dressed the women of Australia for nine decades. And she was extremely stylish. When she was a young woman, she came to Melbourne with her engineer husband, mm-hmm. Oscar, on their honeymoon, and they stayed. And she was a bit of a fashion icon. She travelled a lot and she was privy to all the top hotels and best society. So she observed fashion and she reflected those in her dress style. And friends started to ask her for a pattern or to make a dress for them. And then it just started as a business. So it was 1877 when Johanna and Oscar established this tissue paper and printing machines yeah. for the pattern papers. And they had a premises in Melbourne and Sydney. And then agencies eventually throughout Australia and New Zealand. Well, they'd be the sort of patterns that I would have seen my grandmother cutting up exactly on the lounge room floor yeah you know mccall's and simplicity and madame weagle's paper patterns okay she was in demand especially in rural areas where you know you couldn't access the kind of fashion or you didn't have the funding to look fashionable so the ladies of the land were able to look fashionable and make the clothes with the fabrics they could afford using the patterns okay so what's with the empty grave well while they were in los angeles it was 7th of february 1915 oscar was 70 then and he died from a disease related to the kidneys johanna returned alone with her husband's ashes she was 68 now she lived for another 25 years and she kept herself involved in the business and traveling extensively they had no children and then she passed away from heart failure on the 10th of january 1940 and she was cremated at springvale crematorium the next day but meanwhile she'd bought this plot some time ago with room for three plots but no one was ever buried there so his ashes weren't recorded as being buried there and she wasn't buried there nor her ashes returned to there. It's thanks to the work of Melbourne historian Shirley M. Joy that it was discovered that no bodies or ashes were buried in the grave. So it's a beautiful big grave, yeah. remember? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and it's got a bust of Oscar on it, which Johanna commissioned, and it's enormous, but it's really just a monument. There's no one in there. Okay, still worth going to have a look at. Absolutely. So you'll find the Weagles grave, or monument, in Brighton yes. Cemetery. It's not hard to miss, Presbyterian Section L. Graves number 9, 10 and 11 for three of them. And if you want to read the story, it's in our Grave Tales Melbourne, Melbourne book, Volume 1. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.